Welcome to our Reimagine Mental Health podcast. Today's theme is Beyond Limits. Join us on this enlightening journey as we explore the resilience, strategies, and stories of those who've not only faced life's challenges, but have also found ways to achieve and maintain their mental well-being. Together, we'll uncover the strength within diversity and celebrate the triumph of the human spirit. Get ready to be inspired. So it really, really gives me enormous pleasure to welcome our guests today. Salomzi Ngweni tipped to be our next Proteas superstar. After playing one of the best cricket matches of his career in Scotland, he was struck by a life-threatening illness. This is Gulan Bay syndrome. Mpumalelo Mklongo, also unbelievable story. Mpumalelo was telling me about his story. He is a Paralympian. He's also a structured finance consultant here at Investec. And of course, somebody whom I've been chatting to for many years about mental health issues is Zamon Bele, Chief Clinical Officer. Uh, gentlemen, it is really my great pleasure to have all three of you with us here today. Thank you for having us and thank you for the invitation. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure to, to be with you. So Lomzi, let's start with you. Your story is a story of a life that changed literally in one day. On Saturday morning, you get up, you play a cricket match, you play brilliantly and take us through what happened the very next day. Yeah, so, you know, for those that don't know, just to contextualize what happened to me, at 25 years old, I pretty much had the world at my feet. Um, I just graduated from university um, and I got an offer from my agent to play cricket at a professional level overseas. Sort of three, four months into that stint, things were going very, very well for me, but it took almost an immediate sort of life-changing turn for me. As you mentioned, on the Saturday, I played a game, felt 100% healthy. And by the Sunday, literally overnight, an event which completely changed my life occurred. On that Sunday morning, I woke up and as I was making myself coffee like I would any other day, I noticed that the grip on my hand um, was a bit weaker than it was uh, before as I gripped my coffee mug. Now, I lived with another professional player from overseas named Callum. Uh, he was from New Zealand. And I asked Callum, you know, how he felt after our game that we had the day before. Now, Callum had said to me that he was feeling relatively dehydrated, uh, relatively tired. And therefore, you know, for me to also feel that way would make sense. On that same day, it was the final of the Cricket World Cup 2019, England versus New Zealand. Now, Callum, being a New Zealander and a patriotic New Zealander, wanted to go and support New Zealand um, at a sports pub. And he offered for me to join him. I wasn't feeling particularly strong enough. As mentioned, you know, I was feeling quite weak, but dehydrated. Thought it was fatigue from the day before. So I decided to stay at home on my own in our apartment. Callum leaves. Uh, I'm on my own. I'm on the couch. I'm watching the game. Um, sort of innings break around lunchtime, maybe around 11 a.m. Um, I want to make myself something to eat on that morning. As I get up off of the couch, um, I have this sort of buckling sensation in my knees, kind of if you visualize a deer or a buck um, as it's coming out of the womb and it's trying to find its feet. I had a similar sort of sensation uh, in my legs. Now, I got my stride, went to the kitchen, made myself something to eat, didn't think much of it in that moment, got back on the couch, continued to watch the game. And if you had seen that game, there's no chance and no way England was meant to win that World Cup. Um, just by freak of chance and freak of nature, England had ended up winning that game. And why I mention this and why this is important is because if England 
had lost that game to New Zealand and New Zealand had gone through, my housemate Callum potentially would not have been home that evening to ultimately save my life because I was deteriorating internally as the day went by. Fast forward to around 6 p.m., 7 p.m., Callum comes back with his girlfriend and um, I tell him, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm super weak. I feel super dehydrated. I don't know what's wrong. Um, Let's just get some takeout. Let's not cook tonight and let's take it easy. His girlfriend actually said that I should probably go to the hospital, but as stubborn as I was and probably in a bit of denial, um, I just said to them, you know what, it's fine. You know, I'm okay. Don't worry. Um, Let's just, I don't know if you guys know of a show called Love Island, but I said, let's just watch Love Island and, you know, we'll be okay. So we get the pizzas. um, We're watching Love Island. We're on the couch. We finished the episode. Now it's time to go to bed. As I'm trying to get off of the couch, I realize I'm unable to move. Now my body's completely shut down. I'm completely weak. This is around 10 p.m., 11 p.m. And I ask Callum to come and help me get up. Callum says to me, Solo, come on, just get up, man. Don't be lazy. Um, You're not that weak. And I'm like, no, genuinely, I can't move. So he comes to the end of the couch. He lifts my legs. He realizes that there is a dead weight sort of sensation and that I'm not playing around. And what I said to Callum was, you know what, Callum, it's fine. Get my duvet, get my blanket from the room. I'll sleep on the couch tonight. Famous last words, I'm sure I'll be fine. (laughs) Him and his girlfriend go to bed. And sort of that's supposed to be it, right? I'm supposed to sleep it off, wake up the next day, and I'm okay. Now, around 2 a.m., I want to go to the bathroom, and I'm on my own in the TV room. So again, I'm sort of fighting to try and get myself up off this couch. And at this point, I've deteriorated even further in terms of my health and I end up sort of shaking myself and falling onto the floor. Now, I think this was probably the first time I began to start panicking um, and this is when I began to realize that there could be something, you know, seriously wrong with me. So I immediately start screaming, Callum, help, Callum, help. He doesn't hear me. Callum, help, Callum, help. He doesn't hear me. Now, At 2.30 a.m., you know, on a Sunday night, I'm not sure what him and his girlfriend were up to, but he didn't hear me and um, I'm starting to panic. So we have this little uh, coffee table next to the couch, which my phone was on top of. And I literally had to do like a combat sort of Wolf of Wall Street role, like when he's coming out of the Lamborghini to the front door, like this sort of crawling to try and get to my phone um, so that I could call Callum to help me. Fortunately, I I reached my phone, but once again, you know, I ended up knocking it a little bit further. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, you've got to be kidding me. This, this, This can't be happening. I have to call even further, call Callum. Fortunately, he picks up. I say, Callum, I'm on the ground. I don't know what's happening. I can't move. I can barely talk. Send help now. He storms out of the room, finds me on the ground, literally turns me to the side, calls the ambulance. They ask me a couple of questions. Within 20 minutes, they arrive at the apartment, put me into an ambulance. I call my family in South Africa. I tell them I don't know what's happening. I'm struggling to speak at this point. My words are slurring. I say, I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm going to ICU and you know we'll hear the rest of it at a later stage, but I'm in hospital. Something's wrong. Those are the last words I spoke before waking up in ICU, surrounded by 10 doctors, completely paralyzed, head to toe, unable to talk, drink, eat, just hearing machines going off and literally waking up to what would be my new reality for at least nine months um, overseas in a foreign country. Salamsi, your story is just spine chilling. It really is. I listen to you and we've got, I look at the people around me in the room and we are all in absolute 
awe as we hear you because not only did you survive that, but but here you are speaking to us. And you've just described this moment where you're in hospital, you can't speak, you can't eat, your body's completely paralyzed. You were once quoted as saying you felt like a prisoner in your own body. Talk to us about that because you were still able to have this cognitive ability to think, but to do absolutely nothing else. 100%. So in terms of Guillain-Barre syndrome, it's an autoimmune disease whereby your immune system tricks itself into attacking your nervous system. So internally, my personality, my brain, 100% functional. Externally, in terms of the physical side of things, I'm unable to get the nerves to communicate from my brain to my body. So I'm unable to communicate my thoughts. I'm unable to communicate my feelings. And really, as I woke up into this moment, I woke up to a lot of confusion because I'd never heard about the illness before. I was fully fit. I was an athlete. I looked after myself. You know, I felt I had done all of the right things to maintain my health and to not be a person in that particular position, right? So in those initial stages, when I spent my first three months in ICU, essentially battling for my life, there was a lot of denial going on, you know, a lot of questioning, why me, why this, why God? Um, and I believe for a large part, me having that attitude held me back uh, from being receptive to the treatment, you know, being receptive to the recovery, being receptive to the mindset of prosperity. Um, and it's, it's quite interesting to note that as soon as I shifted the mindset from sort of self-pity to actual acceptance of like, this is where I am, regardless of whether I think I deserve to be here or not. I need to focus on what is going to take me forward day by day. There's no magic pill that was going to flip the switch and allow me to take myself out of that situation. So six months in hospital in Scotland, another three months in South Africa. How are you now? You know, thank goodness for, you know, the doctors, the nurses, the care workers, the support that I had whilst I was there. Because, I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever spent an extended period of time in hospital, but, you know, 10 minutes can feel like 10 hours. And... I was extremely fortunate that I had a fantastic support system that kept me going. And a lot of the fight for me was a thing of wanting to prove people right, because a lot of people believed that I had the mindset and I had the personality and I had, you know, the chutzpah to be able to push through. And for me, it wasn't necessarily about wanting to prove myself right, but wanting to prove the faith that they had in me right to get through this sort of life-defining uh, moment. After the six months in Scotland, I finally recovered to a point where I was able to travel. Um, and I traveled back to South Africa. I spent a further three months in hospital in uh, Johannesburg in Santon Medi Clinic. And uh, whilst I was in hospital there, you would not believe I actually met the person who ended up changing my life. So there was an elderly gentleman in his late 70s who got the exact same illness as I did. And um, during my time in hospital, we formed a bond. And we were essentially fighting uh, this illness um, together. He was a lot further along the way than I was. He was already an outpatient. Um, and he was really just guiding me on what I need to do to be able to sort of overcome what I was being faced with. And um, when I was at the stage where I was recovered well enough to become an outpatient, he then said, you know, what are you going to be up to? Because you're not going to be, you know, hitting any sixes or bowling any bounces anytime soon. Funny enough, he ended up being the person behind the Santon City shopping center development and many other uh, sort of shopping center developments around South Africa. And 
he sort of threw me a lifeline, gave me a chance. And now I work in retail property development. I'm down in Port Elizabeth managing one of his assets for him. And it's been a complete U-turn from what was expected, but it's been a blessing for me to be able to be in the position that I am sort of 70% recovered now. I'm in store with another 30% to go sort of somewhat four years later from when the incident happened to me. Are you expected to make a full recovery? Are you expected to ever be 100% well again? What is the prognosis? It is on the cards, yes. However, with my illness, there were a number of complications. So not only did I have the Guillain-Barre syndrome, um, but whilst I had the Guillain-Barre syndrome, I also got uh, tuberculosis, which came out, which was lying dormant in my, my system. I also suffered uh, liver failure as well as kidney failure. And the, the doctors then had to put me um, into an induced coma because they actually weren't sure what to treat first at the time. Statistically, I actually had 10% chance of, of living. It's amazing. I'm in absolute awe of your whole attitude. And in fact, this is where I want to bring Zamo Mbele in. Zamo, you're a chief clinical officer. And just hearing Solomzi speak, this gut-wrenching story, but here he is making the absolute most of his life. His half-glass full approach is, for me, outstanding. Talk to us about the importance of this positive outlook when faced with such a life-threatening challenge. Absolutely. And I, and I just wanted to congratulate you and say, I think that it's an incredible story. And thank you so much for sharing it to so very many different people in different circumstances. Because of course, you can imagine that we can substitute lying in hospital for um, six months with being unemployed for six months, with um, having difficulties in your relationship for six months, and so on and so forth, kind of um, allowing anybody who's listening to this conversation to imagine what's their six-month journey that they're currently on and can they appreciate that that's where they are in the timeline. I think that we are very familiar with the idea that mindset is such an important ingredient, if not one of the most important ingredients in terms of survival, as well as in terms of thriving and everything in between. And I fortunately have the work of Viktor Frankl to kind of refer to how a mindset can be so important when you just need to make it to the next hour and to, to the next day. And of course, as we're having this conversation today, there's something so important about appreciating that you also cannot thrive or achieve something without a, a positive mindset. I think what a lot of us perhaps need to drill down into is what a positive mindset is. And I wanted to pick up from what I heard, something that is so essential. A positive mindset has an appreciation of the reality, a sober appreciation of what it is that's going on. So it's not kind of toxic positivity, nor near delusional or um, fooling yourself. It's appreciating that these are the current circumstances that I am in and, and that's that, right? And there's no two ways about it. However, what else it does is that it looks for the hope. And I think that we heard that in the conversation. What are the chances of survival? And it works with that. Put differently, it looks at what are the skills and what are my coping strategies available to me right now? And how is it that I can invest in them and pour into them in order to get through and pass this particular situation? And I think that that's so important to firstly note is that there's a risk of getting into a toxicity of positivity, which is to ignore the reality of the situation, to ignore the facts around you and the reality. And that wouldn't be helpful for you because it doesn't actually guide you in reality. However, it looks into reality and focuses on what it is that you can do and what the next is. And hopefully that feeds you to keep going. I've been very interested to just be reminded that the WHO is a definition of mental wellness. There's a very key line that says, 
coping with life's ordinary stresses because it recognizes that life will have stresses and we will need to cope. And I appreciate that because it brings again the reality that I refer to, which is so important for positivity and saying, expect this, that and the other and appreciate where you are. Well, you're in bed, you're in Scotland, you're away from family and how can you work with what you have? And I really, I think it's commendable that you worked with what you had. And um, this is one of the more important variables that I'll kind of end off with, which is um, support. And if I were to play back what it is, you know, you start your conversation by saying I was not alone in an apartment and on my way to a hospital, I called family. And in the hospital, I made connections. And I came back to South Africa and I made more connections. And I think that one of the reasons you were able to embrace a positive mindset was through the support that's necessary for us all in different circumstances and situations. And on the one end of the spectrum, we all know that in grief universally across the globe and planet and across time, we do not grieve alone because we need that support. And similarly, as is happening this morning with the Springboks, we also don't celebrate alone. We celebrate together. So everything else, again, in the middle of that spectrum speaks to the importance of support in order to help you with the positivity that you might need in mindset to keep going. And um, thank you for highlighting that ingredient. And I just wanted to, to pick that up in your narrative. Support is so important for positivity. Thank you, Zamo. You've said so many things that are very profound and resonate with all of us. The one thing is the World Health Organization's definition of mental wellness, coping with life's ordinary stresses. And this is where I want to bring in our next guest, Mpumalelo Mklongo, Paralympian Structured Finance Consultant. When we talk about ordinary stresses, Zamo and I, for example, it's not your life's ordinary stresses because you also have a unique and really awe-inspiring story to tell us, having been born with amniotic band syndrome and how this affected your life. How have you kept your mental wellness in check and positive through your life's journey? I come from a Zulu background, so my mom used to say there is uh, no excuse for what happens in life because in Zulu, the, the word for life and the word for war comes with the same root, which is impi. So impilo is life, impi is war, and you are forever in battle. And it's just about finding the rhythms that make that battle worthwhile. So for myself, I think positivity is exactly that. It's a dance. Uh, there are times where there is no music and you have to create your own beat to a song that you might not really understand, to words that might not resonate so that you can fool yourself in being elevated to uh, not sit in the darkness of despair. But other times there's rhythms that carry you into the wave of despair, but straight back out. And uh, ordinary stresses even for sports people are there. And I think we have the privilege and uh, Solomzi would have lived this life prior and then obviously got that taken away. Whereas my journey is all about my disability is the reason why I was able to represent the country. So you got that nice contrast of what is meant to hold me back is the reason why I've seen the world. And uh, that gratitude comes down to sports can unite. Sports will give you health, but sports is not left for the few. Sport is for all of us and for all of us to embrace in it. Salomzi, how do you respond to what Mpubalelo has just said? Because what was meant to hold me back is the reason I saw the world is very profound, uh, Mpumi. Yeah. It's the opposite for you. What was meant to help you see the world is ultimately from a sporting perspective, what could be seen as holding you back. How do you now respond to... 
sporting events. It's the Cricket World Cup underway as we speak. We are recording this podcast as the Cricket World Cup is on the go. We are recording this podcast at the exact time that the world champions, the Springboks, have just landed back in South Africa. So we are surrounded by this euphoria in the country. What does it do to you and how do you engage with sport today? Firstly, you know, what Mpumalelo said really struck a chord for me because I've, I respect his outlook. And what comes back to me on that is what is your perception? You know, what what is your identity going to be? And this is a, a, a journey that I needed to walk when I was going through the illness in that a lot of my identity previously was formed as Solomzi, the cricket player, you know, that's what I was known for. I was meant to play for South Africa. I was meant to do X, Y, and Z. It it had given me everything that I had up until that point to travel, to see the world, to get an education, you know, to uh, essentially establish my life. My identity was one of Solomzi, the cricket player. And for a long time, I battled with, you know, that perception and that view of letting that go, you know, being a 80 kgs athletic person that everyone has the highest hopes and prospects for to being in hospital 57 kgs sticks and bones i remember the first time i saw myself in a mirror after a few months and this was a a, a very big defining moment for me the physiotherapist sort of took me out of my bed took me into the, the the physiotherapy um studio and put me in front of a mirror and I remember seeing myself for the first time in months and, and seeing all of the changes that had happened physically and struggling with that, you know, looking and seeing that that is not the person that I know. That is not the person that I invested my life sort of to become. I was almost like a hangman, you know, inside of my clothes. And what had happened in that moment, I said to the physiotherapist, I can't look at myself. I can't see myself in this mirror. Please, can you turn me to the side? But I still want to continue with the session. So, so there are two things there where I couldn't handle what I was seeing in front of the mirror, but I still wanted to do what I needed to do in order to take myself forward so that eventually I might be able to build myself to a point where I can look at myself in that mirror. And it comes down to that sort of perception and, and what is your identity going to be? So as soon as I was able to sort of let go of what was, you know, and accept what is and focus on what the possible outcome could be on the road that I'm walking now. A lot of things changed for me. You know, we we all have grown up with, with our own stories and it's just a beautiful thing to see. But it's a paradox for me in that it brings me joy. It brings me the gooseies. It brings me all the good stuff. But then on the other side, there is an element of pain that it brings that I could not be on that field doing what they are doing for the nation. And I had that opportunity and it was taken away from me by no means of my own doing something which was completely out of my hands, a one in 100,000 sort of occurrence. And again, you you sit there with that acceptance of it is what it is, you know. Sure. So Lomsi, I'm so moved by your story. I actually find myself being moved to tears. I am so moved by your story. Uh, Zamo, you wanted to come in and say something. Yeah, and I think that it's so important that you've spoken about the tears in the, in the room and um, kind of the fact that listening to this really um, 
allows us to connect with our own vulnerability and our own um, um, resilience. So hence, I, I really kind of say thank you um, for that. In fact, and I, I'm jumping in here because I equally wanted to honor what you've given in contribution very briefly with three high level points that I think people will benefit from hearing. One of them is strategically something that you describe that's so important and we see it in the mammalian reptilian brain, which is the ability to focus on what's in front of you and remove what might be distractions in the periphery and say, actually, my ability to take all of this information in is not good for the situation right now. I just need to focus on this and get on with it. And a lot of us will be familiar with that when we have adrenaline because the adrenal response is that we shut off what's in the periphery, we hyper-focus what's in front of us. Even our body does that, right? So it takes blood and oxygen from the extremities of our limbs and says, I just need to protect the organs and rush blood to the head so that we can keep going. So I just wanted to pick up that your strategy, which was conscious, is such a helpful strategy and it finds its evidence in human evolution in the adrenal response. And it, it's something that we can all apply even to our day-to-day ongoing. And I think we do when you know that you have to prioritize triage or remove something in order to keep going. So good on you. And I think that that's something that can be applied across the board. Just go for it. I have a quick question. Did you realize, Salomzi, in the time that you were even doing that, that you were actually using this phenomenal strategy that Zamo has spoken about in order just to protect yourself and almost save yourself? Not at all. I mean, the whole experience for me, it was a new one. I, I can't say I had any knowledge of, you know, how to cope or how to deal you know, with the situation. I, I just felt like I had a lot more life to live. And I remember just repeating the words to myself um, when I was like in a coma, actually, I remember I used to say to myself, this is not how you go out. This is not how you die. This is not how it ends. Not like this. I, I, I was almost like laughing at myself to say, yesterday you were playing a cricket match. Today you are completely paralyzed, dying. How can, how can that happen? You, you can't die like this. You can't go out this way. And I think just from that sort of instinct of trying to figure out the way, maybe those natural juices sort of kicked in and my body sort of externally represented what was going on internally in the actions that I would then take to move myself forward and recover and wake up from the coma. I remember the the nurses were even surprised actually when I'd woken up. They were like, what? Like you've woken up, you know? And I just remember that in that moment, these are the words that were in my mind. This is not it. This is not how it ends. This is not how you go out. It's you've got more life to live. Just just wake up. You know. You're such a cricketer, Salomzi. This is not the way you go out. Uh, <laughs> I, I speak about this is not my finish line because I'm a sprinter. I love that. Exactly, and 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 maybe you can also give us some context on that because it is that stubbornness to accept and to like, succeed it's, and it's to like, win. Because um, I think you guys th- are both yeah. as as sports yeah. stars. You are both as athletes. You are both programmed to win. And so it sounds to me like that's exactly what you were doing. What I imagine you would say to yourself on that cricket pitch is what you were saying to yourself in that coma. And Pumalelo, I'm, I'm imagining it's exactly the same for you, programmed to get over that finish line to win and that this kind of resonates in other areas of your life, outside of sport even. I think a large part of the toughest moments that we face, whether in the sporting field, personal background, I also have a line for myself. It's not the way I, it's not the way I go out, but I always say I'm changing the finish line to suit me. Uh, <laughs> and I, 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 you are allowed to do that. This is your story. It's your narrative. And sometimes 100 meters is too far today. 
So my finish line is at the 20 meter mark and I can be proud of that when I go to bed tonight. And a lot of people who suffer from any mental health or any mental illnesses don't realize that they have the power to change their own narrative and they don't need anyone to validate what that narrative is for that day because our struggles differ. But one thing that you did touch on, which I found really interesting, and I'm interested to see what Zamwa says just from a clinical psych perspective, is that duality, the very thing that is your body that potentially saved your life with that 10% chance is the same thing that you couldn't bear to look at when you were on the other side. And like, it's really interesting that we go through life with these dualities that we uh, seem to want to ignore, uh, but they exist. And those are part of the challenges that make us who we are. And uh, those learnings of the thing that saved you can be the thing that feels like it betrayed you. And how do you go through dealing with that on an ordinary day-to-day basis? I see you nodding when, when Mpumalelo says the very thing that, that you were working for betrayed you. Did you feel betrayed by your own body at any point? Well, it's, it's, it's what he was touching on in the sense of the duality, right? And what I was saying earlier on accepting the fact that I was in the situation but then also not accepting that this was the way I was going to go out, right? So it's this concept of being able to hold these two things simultaneously that are polar opposites, but are almost working together to get you out of the situation, you know? And I fully resonate with that because often in life, we get taught that it's one thing or the other. And a lot of life is gray. And and sometimes when you're in that gray, you're going to be close to the black line. And other times you're going to be close to the white line. But often you are navigating a lot of grayness. And and that's why I was nodding because it's literally that. Maybe from a a professional perspective, Zamo can touch on this. It's that idea of holding two paradoxical ideas, polar opposites, but still work in that gray area to move you forward. I mean, I think that you both invite me to to speak about something that's so important. That dualism or that opposition is one of the, the core features or tenets or theologies in DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy, which is very, very popular and very, very um, vogue, I suppose, because it works. It finds its roots from mindfulness, from very Eastern practices of meditation that say we can hold two things in once. We can accept and thrive for change, both at the very same time. We can be in grief and have hope. We can be in pain and have success, both at the same time. And it is something that's very difficult for us human beings to get to at all given moments, right? Because we oftentimes like to either stay with um, something we might refer to as obsessional certainty, I need to know, because it offers the myth that you'll be safe, there'll be certainty, or I'm going to abandon everything that is in pursuit and I'm going to be an obsessional doubt. I don't know anything. I can't do anything. Though a dialectic kind of approach that you refer to, and I think quite rightfully pick up, holds two things at once. And to go back to two missing points, um, Solomzi, when I was reflecting on your contribution, the second one, which is very dialectic, is to also say, I am going to push through this and I cannot do it by myself. I'm going to do the best that I can every moment, every session. I'm really going to throw myself at it. I'm going to recruit my friends and family on social media to support me and to hold me accountable. I'm going to recruit the medical staff that's around me to also work with me and to encourage me when I need. And I'm going to recruit the support of a loved one that's right here immediately to give me the most support. So, you know, you kind of see that dialectic uh, approach, which really helped you in, in that moment. And equally, when you're speaking about grief, 
Um, and I don't know if you're aware, the equally dialectic where you go, you know, I can look at what is lost and what's gone and what I will never be without everything being lost. And there's a very, probably showing, I don't know, my taste, my age, Coplay in the more original days have a really great song called um, Everything's Not Lost, which is just so beautiful and poetic. And it speaks, it's very sorrowful because it recognizes what is lost and gone. Though if we can know that and say goodbye, then we can know what we're saying hello to, what we still have available to us. And I think a healthy grief that um, allows you to still watch the sports, to still be with your colleagues who, who play the sport is exactly what is in the dialectic, to, to know what is gone, though not to give everything up. And this approach, as you can hear, can be so helpful and so healthy in day-to-dayism and is so difficult to, to hold on to, which is why we must practice it. Well, gentlemen, I feel like I could go on and on and on. I almost actually feel like this podcast needs a an episode two because there is so much to say. We'll leave it here for today, though, but I want to leave it off by saying thank you to all of you, Salomzi and Pomelelo especially, for opening up, for allowing us to share your story with you, for being vulnerable. Thank you for All of that, as I said, I was actually so moved. And I know that our listeners on this podcast will be too. Thank you. Thank you for the invite. Thank you for having us. This brings us to the end of today's episode of our Reimagine Mental Health podcast series, brought to you by Investec Life, an authorized FSP and licensed insurer. If you'd like to listen to the next episode, please subscribe to Investec Focus Radio SA wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye from me, Katie Katapodis, and the Investec Life team. 